Hey folks, welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go over recent developments in the public safety workplace. I'm going to shake things up a little bit here. Um, first of all, I'm not going to talk about vaccines that much. I'm very, very little. Uh, and I am going to do a little bit that's more standard lecture style rather than talking about recent cases. Uh, I'm going to talk about the consumer price index, and I know that's so exciting, right? Uh, but we are seeing CPI numbers that we have not seen for 40 years, and I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, why it is we're seeing that, what's driving the CPI, and most importantly, I think for all of us, uh, what this bodes for the future in terms of contract negotiations. So we'll delve uh uncomfortably long into the consumer price index. But first of all, uh, I want to talk about a guy, okay? This is a guy who has been coming to LRIS seminars since 2005. His name is John Crystal. I think I may have mentioned him once. Uh, he's the president of the Newark, New Jersey Police Superior Officers Association. And one thing John does, or has always done, when he comes to these LRIS seminars is uh, he pays uh, incredible attention and then goes home and puts into operation ideas that have been discussed at LRIS seminars. And he does it very, very routinely. Now, people who come to our seminars, any of you who've been to them know people a lot of people pay attention, right? Uh, very rarely, even in Las Vegas and uh, on Thursday afternoon, we don't have many people leaving the seminar room or dozing off. We try to make these seminars as exciting as we possibly can. We also have lots of people who take notes about the seminars and ask questions. We just love it when people ask questions. Where John is a little bit different is you can kind of look up uh, three, five years from now and see uh, John being involved in a case that was originally discussed or a theory that was originally discussed at an LRIS seminar. John's not a lawyer. He's the president of the union, but he handles more unfair labor practice complaints in New Jersey, I think, than anybody else in New Jersey. And he has an astonishing uh, one-loss record or win-loss record, uh, at better than probably 95% of lawyers around the country. He wins almost every case that he's involved with. Uh, why am I talking about John? Because he had a very good month. Uh, there are two cases that came down out of New Jersey that involve some pretty significant principles. And I want to talk about those cases now and why it was the Superior Officers Association, the SOA as it's called, why it won these two cases. So I'll start in on the first one. Uh, at the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, the city of Newark was experiencing a pretty severe reduction in revenue collections, uh, particularly with respect to property taxes, but other sorts of revenues that were also affected by the pandemic, payroll taxes, utility payments, and the like. 
at the same time, the city had an increase in costs for first responders. Uh, and also, for some reason, it's unclear, public uh, works employees. I know there's a lot of increase uh, around the country in overtime costs for first responders at the time the pandemic first struck. I'd never heard public works employees before. And uh, the result was that the city was in kind of a budget crisis. So the city did a couple of things. First of all, it got its Civil Service Commission to approve a temporary layoff plan for non-essential employees. Uh, that's not the subject of this case. What is, is the second thing that the city did. It announced a voluntary severance incentive program, uh, which goes by the acronym VSIP. I'll just call it incentive program. And under this incentive program, the city would pay uh, people who were eligible to retire up to $25,000, a buyout to eligible employees if they retired or somehow separated from service by October 31st of 2020. The big thing is, is that the VSIP, the incentive plan, also promised eligibility for post-retirement health insurance benefits for employees who had 25 years or more of service who participated in the incentive program, they would have enhanced access to this post-retirement health insurance. Uh, the SOA demanded to bargain over the implementation of the uh, incentive program. Uh, why? What would be negotiable about that? The court's opinion here doesn't really go into much detail on it, but uh, post-retirement health care is a mandatory subject of bargaining. Uh, in New Jersey and everywhere that I know of, to the extent there's not a state law that preempts it, and there's not in New Jersey, uh, it's a working condition. It's a wage-type issue, so it's mandatory for bargaining. And what the SOA is saying by uh, demanding to bargain is, look, you can't make a unilateral change in a mandatory subject of bargaining without bargaining us, bargaining with us, negotiate this, uh, the terms of this incentive program with us. And the city responds, uh, we don't have to. Uh, we're responding to an emergency, uh, and this is a management right uh, to implement the incentive program, and I'm quoting, as a tool to reduce staff and offset the budget gap as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, end of quote. Uh, the SOA responds by filing yet another unfair labor practice complaint with New Jersey's Public Employment Relations Commission, and New Jersey's PERC uh, ends up deciding yet one more time in the SOA's favor that the city violated the law. So what's the rationale of the city? Uh, excuse me, what's the rationale of PERC in holding that this is an unfair labor practice? Uh, let me read you a few sentences here. Uh, PERC says here, the fact that the city implemented the program without negotiating with the SOA while the parties were in negotiations for a successor contract is not in dispute. Okay, this is a memo to employers listening to this. It's one thing to make a unilateral change in a mandatory subject of bargaining during the term of the contract. That's uh, almost certainly going to be an unfair labor practice. But if you do so when you're bargaining for a successor contract, 
you've just upped the ante and you've made it much more likely that a labor board is going to find your actions in violation of the law. Okay, back to Perk. Nor is there any dispute that the city then refused the SOA's demand to negotiate over the program and refused its request to rescind the program pending negotiations. It is also clear that the city unilaterally expanded eligibility for paid health care benefits to SOA members who accepted a buyout under the incentive program to a degree not available under the party's contract. End result? Unfair labor practice. But there's a twist here, okay? And the twist is that New Jersey's PERC not only finds a breach of the obligation to bargain in the unilateral change that was made by the city here, it also finds impermissible direct dealing. So what's direct dealing? The principle of direct dealing is that if something is a mandatory subject of bargaining, if it's a wage hour or working condition, an employer must negotiate with the union about that issue, not individual bargaining unit members. Now, direct dealing comes up in a wide variety of different contexts in, uh, in the public safety labor world. Maybe the most common is when an employer wants to extend the probationary period for an employee goes to the employee and says, look, you know, you've only got two weeks left on your probationary period. If we had to make the choice right now, we would probably uh, terminate you. Uh, but what we'd really like to do is to give you another chance. So we'd like to extend your probationary period by two months, give you some remedial training. Um, and uh, what do you say? Uh, are you willing to agree to this? And employees, of course, probationary employees always agree to that because the alternative is what? Termination? Uh, well, whenever you see a situation like that where the employer is directly approaching employees about something, the first question that you have to ask is, is this a mandatory subject of bargaining? Well, is the extension of a probationary period a mandatory subject of bargaining? Sure. Uh, because it, it concerns the negotiable working condition of discipline. It changes the disciplinary standard from that of being an at-will employee, as most probationary employees are, uh, to being permanent, subject to a just cause standard. That line of demarcation is where the disciplinary standard changes. And by extending the probationary period, you move that line of demarcation. So that's a, a classic direct dealing case. You see it come up a lot in the form of last chance agreements, where you have a permanent employee who the employer has done something that probably warrants termination. The employer wants to give the employee a last chance Usually these are alcohol-related cases and they are contingent on the employee going through alcohol rehabilitation treatment. And so what the employer does is to reach with the employee agreement an agreement that in lieu of termination, the employee will ex accept some sort of suspension, say a 30-day suspension, will agree to go into alcohol rehabilitation treatment or retraining, whatever it might be, whatever the underlying problem might be. And that the, if the employee uh, 
has a future event within a certain number of years, three years, five years, that is related to the offense that put the employee in this situation in the first place, uh, then the employer can simply fire that employee without recourse to the grievance procedure. Uh, those are called last chance agreements. Well, uh, what do you ask yourself? Is that a mandatory subject of bargaining? Yeah, again, it, it deals with the standard for discipline and also deals with access to the grievance procedure. That means that a one-on-one -on -one agreement with that employee, just like the extension of probation, that agreement is not valid unless the union is a party to it. Because under the notions of direct dealing, Agreements about mandatory subjects of bargaining have to be with the union. And you see this come up just in so many different uh, situations. Employers that want to uh, implement a lateral hire program where employees get certain bonuses once they hire on. Uh, concern a mandatory subject of bargaining? Yeah, uh, wages, right? Uh, and so that means the union has to sign on to these things. Back to Newark. Uh, so here we have the employer going out and encouraging individual employees to sign up for this uh, incentive program, this retirement incentive program. Does that concern a mandatory subject of bargaining? Yeah, we've already talked about that. Post-retirement health insurance is a mandatory subject of bargaining. That means that for the employer to implement that program without agreement of the union, constitutes the unfair labor practice of direct dealing. So that's the first of these two cases that involves the Superior Officers Association. Uh, the second one uh, also involves a principle that you see come up from time to time, uh, although it's been a few years since I've seen this one, uh, and it deals with how the grievance procedure works. So in this case, the Superior Officers Association has filed some grievances alleging that the city violated its contract in two ways. First of all, by refusing to pay uh, SOA members' longevity on comp time payouts. So it didn't include longevity pay on, on comp time payouts. Parenthetically, that would also be a violation of the Fair Labor Standards Act, but it's not discussed in this case. Uh, the second grievance is failing to uh, pay uh, a couple of retiring SOA members for their unused vacation days. Both of these grievances are filed by the union, and they end up going to step five of the grievance procedure in the SOA's contract. That step is the city's police director. That is a long grievance procedure, isn't it? If it takes five steps to get all the way to step five of the grievance procedure, so the police director looks at both of these grievances and grants them. Says, you know what, SOA, you're right, I grant the grievances. The city then refuses to implement the police director's decision, saying he doesn't have the authority to grant those grievances. So the SOA responds by filing an unfair labor practice charge with PERC, again, New Jersey's PERC, about saying basically the city is repudiating the grievance procedure in the contract by not complying with the police director's decisions uh, on both of these grievances. A PERC hearing officer conducts a hearing in the case uh, and rules in favor of the SOA. 
uh, and ends up holding that the city's refusal to, and I'm quoting, abide by a decision of its designated grievance representative constitutes a refusal to negotiate in good faith. So now you have a hearing officer uh, decision. Does the city comply? Nope. The city uh, not only fails to comply, it also fails to file exceptions to the hearing officer's report. And under Perk's rules, if you don't file exceptions to what a hearing officer recommends, the report becomes Perk's final decision. So now we have the hearing officer's decision after the passage of time becoming Perk's decision. Does the city comply? No. Does it appeal into the court system? No. So what happens next? Perk then brings the matter into the court system and brings it before a New Jersey appeals court. That's not clear to me from the court's opinion why the trial court is bypassed, but a lot of times these appeals from administrative agencies go directly to a court of appeals. And the court of appeals looks at this case and says, uh, what is going on here, city? What's What's wrong? Why are you behaving in this fashion? Uh, and I'm going to quote a couple of sentences from the court's opinion here so you get the flavor of how kind of offended the court is with the city's course of action. Quote, without question, Perk's orders rest upon substantial evidence in the record uh, as a whole as to all the unfair labor practice charges. The city conceded that its designated grievance representative, the police director, issued a decision with which the city failed to comply. The city never sought arbitration as it was entitled to do so under the contract. Apparently, the contract allows the city to go to arbitration. The city has never contested that its conduct constitutes an unfair labor practice. We refuse to consider the merits of the city's defenses, specifically that Perk's orders are contrary to the law or against public policy. Simply put, the city could have asserted those arguments by filing a timely appeal with our court. For reasons still unexplained, the city chose not to do so. Wow, you don't want to be on the receiving end of that sort of opinion, do you? Uh, and it, it just indicates there's something that kind of seriously went wrong uh, with respect to the city's reaction to this case. So that's uh, the John Crystal segment of this podcast. Thank you, John, if you're listening, for uh, giving us a couple of opinions to talk about this month that uh, I think are good reminders in both cases of some basic principles. By, by the way, that last case, the one where the police director granted the grievance, it reminded me of an old Maine case. And by old, I mean, I want to say late 1980s, maybe early 1990s. And it was a state police case. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a case where an employee was terminated. A uh, trooper was terminated for sexual harassment. And the trooper filed a grievance. Step one of the grievance procedure was the uh, immediate supervisor of the trooper, a sergeant. Sergeant looked at the grievance and said, hmm, that, that seems right to me, and granted the grievance. The uh, Whoever the chief is, I don't 
know the exact title of the chief of the main state police, whether it's superintendent or chief or colonel, whoever is, is running the main state police, said, wait a minute, sergeant, you don't have any authority to grant a grievance. Uh, and the, uh, the chief refused to reinstate the trooper. A lawsuit was filed, made it all the way up to the main Supreme Court, and the main Supreme Court said, you know what? If you give someone the authority in the grievance procedure to make a decision, employer, you're stuck with it. Your solution here is not to refuse to comply with the resolution of that grievance. Your solution is to change who is responding to grievances. You have control over that. Uh, you don't. It doesn't have to be a sergeant necessarily. You can bargain something different, a different grievance procedure. Uh, and so the court ends up upholding the reinstatement of the trooper. I always wanted to see the follow-up case on that as to whatever happened to that sergeant. Um, in, my, in my vision, he was probably transferred to some island off the coast of northern Maine somewhere, but I never did here, so I'm just going to be stuck with that. Okay, uh, let me move on, but stay in the northeast part of the United States. Uh, and talk about another case that actually started in an LRIS seminar uh, that we did. And this is one involving routine physical and psychological examinations. So I, I've been saying for years at LRIS seminars, sometimes in our, our wellness seminars, sometimes I just I, I put it into our recent developments uh, segment of the seminar, I've been saying for years that routine physical and psychological examinations violate the Americans with Disabilities Act. And by routine, I mean have an exam every year, every three years, or maybe have an exam if you use more than five days of sick leave, you're going to have to go through a fitness for duty evaluation of some sort. Or maybe routine exam if you're coming back from a worker's compensation injury. I've been saying that those sorts of exams, with a very narrow exception that I'll talk about in a moment, uh, violate the privacy provisions of the ADA. Why? Uh, wh what is the problem? Under the ADA, there is a single sentence that is a privacy clause. It is the source of the biggest portion of workplace privacy rights that employees have that pertain to their medical condition. That single sentence says that an employer may only make inquiries as to the nature or extent of an employee's disability if it has reasons for doing so that are job-related and consistent with business necessity. What this means is, is that medical information about the employee, which includes psychological information, that is off-limits unless the employee has reasons particular to this employee that are job-related and consistent with business necessity. So what's this new case all about? And uh, in this, uh, I've got to uh, give a shout out to this. Uh, this case was given to us by Brian Decker, uh, who along with Jennifer Rubin uh, represent the 
uh, Boston Police Patrolmen's Association. Uh, they're both really good lawyers out there, and they, they pay attention to the law uh, very well. So uh, this is a case involving uh, the Boston Police Department. Uh, two employees, officers uh, James LaCroix uh, and Detective Renee Payne Callender. Uh, both of them suffer work-related injuries. LaCroix uh, sustains, I'm apologizing to him, by the way, if that turns out to be pronounced LaCroix, uh, I'll call him LaCroix. He has uh, back and hip injuries uh, that he suffers while he's on duty, and Payne Callender injures her Achilles tendon while on duty. They're both placed on leave for an extended period of time. Uh, LaCroix is off on leave for 2018 uh, when he's finally cleared uh, by his doctors to return to work. Uh, Payne Callender is off work for uh, almost a year before she's cleared to return to work. And the city requires both of them to go through a psychological fitness for duty evaluation as a precondition to returning to work. Uh, and the uh, the somebody who comes to an LRIS seminar, I have forgotten his name now, uh, goes back to Boston, somebody from the Boston Police Department, and says to the union, does that apply to us? And the union ended up looking at this and filing a lawsuit, or actually more than one union, because detectives are in a different union uh, than patrol officers in Boston. And they file a, a lawsuit in federal court, and the federal court ruled last week that the city's policies were illegal. And the court says a lot of things here in even stronger terms than any court has said before. And so I'm going to read more than a few sentences from this court's opinion. I'll intersperse it with comments uh, because the message here, I think, is just really, really an important one. The court says... A medical examination, and remember, that's both physical and psychological. A medical examination is job-related and consistent with business necessity if the employer has, and here it comes, a reasonable belief based on objective evidence that a medical condition will impair an employee's ability to perform essential job functions or that the employee will pose a threat due to a medical condition. So what the court is saying with those that single sentence right there is, first of all, this inquiry has to be employee by employee. No blanket medical examinations. I can't say that enough. These blanket requirements you got to do it if a certain amount of time passes after some particular event. Those blanket requirements do not cut it under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, now, the city makes a lot of different arguments here. Uh, the city says, look, uh, we, we need to conduct an assessment of an individual's uh, physical and mental well-being before they return to work. Um, you know, and also mental health issues are often overlooked and underreported in law enforcement. And in, quote, the context of armed police officers could have very serious consequences for the safety of officers and the public, end of quote. Uh, what does the court say about that argument? And I'm quoting, 
the court agrees with plaintiffs that the Boston Police Department has failed to establish business necessity to justify subjecting all officers to physical examination or psychological examinations when unrelated to an injury that caused the leave from the job. Okay, here's the narrow exception. Remember I said no blanket exams, but there is a narrow exception. When someone goes off on workers' comp, the employer may well have reasons that are job-related and consistent with business necessity to make sure they are fully healed from the condition for which they were taken off work. That doesn't mean you can do a psychological evaluation for someone who has back problems, right? And it means you can only examine the individual who has back problems for those particular back problems. You can't do a heart exam. You can't do other types of physical exams. It has to be particular to the reason they went off on workers' compensation. Court goes on here uh, to say uh, something that I think is, is pretty important about the employer's burden of proof in these cases. The court says, additionally, the police department has failed to present any evidence to establish that being on leave for three months or six months causes increased risk for physical or psychological conditions that could negatively impact an officer's job performance. So again, no justification for a blanket rule here. Quote, the research the police department cites concerns negative health, health outcomes associated with being unemployed, not temporary workplace separation due to illness or injury. So the court ends up saying, you didn't have a reason to believe that these two employees could not do the essential functions of the job. And worse, you haven't shown a legal basis for the timing of these examinations. Result, violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Now, these are practices, these mandatory physical and psychological evaluations that occur in a lot of places. Uh, and this is one where employers routinely get into trouble. Now, uh, let's talk about the cost of living for a little bit. Uh, cost of living is, is right now at really record levels, right? Record since the early 1980s. The most recent national numbers, as of the time I'm recording this podcast, are that the CPIW uh, is rising at an annual rate of 8.6%. Uh, it varies by the four regions that the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is the arm of the Department of Labor that constructs the CPI, it varies by uh, which of the regions you're looking at. Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I'll call it BLS, uh, BLS has uh, four different regional areas, Northeast, Midwest, South, and West. Northeast, the CPI is rising at the slowest rate, 7.3% per year, if you can call that the slowest. Uh, its second slowest is in the West at 8.5%. Uh, the Midwest is rising at a rate of 9% and South 9.1%. Uh, these are pretty astonishing figures for the CPIW. 
So, uh, so let's talk about what's causing those figures to happen, and let's talk about what the CPI is and how it's constructed. Um, and I'm not going to go into detail about this for fear of completely boring everybody listening to this podcast, but just a little bit of detail on it. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts together uh, the CPI based on what it calls market baskets. And market baskets are the hypothetical collection of the goods and services that a consumer purchases on a regular basis. Uh, and the reason they call them market baskets, think, think of a shopping cart you know, when you're going through a grocery store and you're putting food in there, but it's a big shopping cart, so you're also putting your house in there and your car and uh, you know whatever services that you might have that, that you purchase. You go to the doctor or you know, something like that. It, it's all of the things that we purchase. They go into these market baskets. And what the Bureau of Labor Statistics does is to do a massive sampling of the pricing for those goods and services uh, and does so in some places on a monthly basis and in other places it does so on a less frequent basis uh, and measures the change in the pricing for those goods and services. Now every once in a while the Bureau of Labor Statistics will reconfigure the market basket uh, as our purchasing patterns change. So think for example what the CPI would have looked like back in the early 1980s, uh, what the computer portion of the CPI would have looked at back then, uh, hint, non-existent, uh, versus what it might be right now. So it changes the components of the market basket, not frequently, but it does so on a regular basis. And it also changes the weights given to the different items. So what are weights? They're how frequently we purchase something relative to everything else in the market basket. It puts all those things together and it comes up with a number uh, that has a base year value of 100. Uh, and so every month or every six months or however frequently the CPI is published, <coughs> excuse me, for that area, uh, you'll find a new number. It'll go from 100 point to 101.3 or whatever it might be. And then you measure the percentage difference between those two and you get the rate of increase in the CPI. Now, to make things a little bit more complicated, there are two CPIs. There is the CPIW, you heard me refer to that earlier, and the CPIU. The CPIU, which uh, the U stands for All Urban Consumers, the CPIU uh, includes it, more entities, more people than the CPIW, which is a smaller sample size. The CPIU in, includes everybody who's in the CPIW, and I'll talk to you about who those people are in a moment, includes everybody who's in the CPIW plus, it includes people who are on a fixed income like retirees and uh, people who are on social, social security. It even includes some social clubs. Uh, so it is a broader index. The CPIW only includes what the W stands for, wage earners and clerical workers. Uh, I've long thought, and I think a lot of people agree with me on this, uh, that when you're negotiating uh, for uh, the use of the CPI in your collective bargaining agreement, you should be using the CPIW. Uh, it's the group uh, 
whose purchasing pattern has the most relevance to people who are working in the public safety world. So I'd, I'd recommend using the CPIW. So what's driving these huge increases? And you hear a lot of political chatter about this, and I've got to tell you, whenever you start to hear political chatter about uh, the CPI, uh, maybe go to some other source because the political chatter is so rarely accurate. So the chatter you're hearing right now is we're hearing one set of people uh, on one side of the political spectrum say, this is all Biden's fault because we have not uh, opened up our drilling the way that we should, drilling for oil, and, and these are all fuel-dependent costs. And, and then on the other side, you hear people saying, actually, these are some long-term issues, uh, and it, it's all Trump's fault. Well, no, neither one of those are right. Uh, so what's driving this rapid increase in the CPI? Is it, is it all the price of oil? Actually, no. And the price of oil is not even the biggest reason that we are seeing these rapid increases in the CPI. It's housing is the biggest reason. Uh, housing, you remember I told you there's these different things that go into the market basket, um, and the technical term for them, not so technical, are these are components of the CPI. The housing component of the CPI is roughly 35% of the whole CPI. And when you, when you think about it, that's a huge percentage, right? Uh, because we've got so many other things that we spend our money on. We do spend it on fuel, both in form of direct uh, fuel purchases at the tank, but also fuel goes into almost everything that is made. Oil goes into you know, plastics and all sorts of stuff that is made. So there's indirect impacts of fuel. So we have all those expenses. We buy cars. Those are really expensive. We have medical care. I mean, there's lots of other components to the CPI. 35% is huge. And uh, what the economists are saying right now is the big, biggest driver of the, this rapid increase in the CPI are housing costs. And that's a scary proposition, maybe even scarier than the fuel proposition, right? Because you can kind of see a light at the end of the tunnel on fuel. You know, once Ukraine comes to a position of stasis, whatever that might eventually be, uh, once OPEC decides it's in its best advantage to open up the spigots because OPEC has been uh, very assiduously controlling uh, the supply of oil during the Ukraine war. Uh, you can kind of see oil coming down. It's, you know, we're never going to see the rates we saw before because oil is a scarce resource uh, and not just scarce, but diminishing supply. Uh, you're never going to see it come down quite that far, but we're not going to see the $5 a gallon forever and ever. But what about housing costs? Uh, think about housing costs where you live. Let's not talk about them in Portland, where they are just like where I am, where they are obscenely high. But let's talk about housing costs wherever you are listening to this podcast. You know, if you're John Crystal, got to mention his name again, sitting out there in New Jersey, maybe he lives in Newark, I don't know. He'll tell you his housing costs are going way up. 
Or Brian Decker, that lawyer in Boston, he'll say, well, you've got a good in Portland compared to what our housing costs are right now. Or, you know, I've got, got a lot of friends in California, uh, anywhere in California, uh, same thing. Uh, and what this has told us, or what I think this predicts, is that without a reasonable end to sight in the increase in the cost of housing, we may be looking at a relatively durable rate of inflation here. Maybe not in the levels of 7, 8, 9%, but certainly a lot more than the level of 2 to 3% that we have seen for a long period of time. So what does this tell us about bargaining and negotiating? First of all, it, it tells me that there's going to be more interest on the part of unions in second year and third year wage formulas and contracts that are based upon the CPI. So instead of like the second year of a contract being 3%, instead you'll see a formula that something like, and I'm making this totally up and I'll use Portland as an example, uh, the wages for the second year of the contract shall be increased by the percentage rate of increase in the annual CPIW for Portland uh, for the preceding year. Uh, and I'm totally making that up since there's not even a Portland index anymore. So that sort of formula. Now, employers are going to want to see a cap on a CPI-driven increase. And from the employer standpoint, the lower the cap, the better. The maximum increase shall be 5% or whatever it might be. Unions, while they might be willing to agree to a cap, are going to want to see a higher cap than employers are. And on the low end of the scale, uh, unions are going to want to see a floor just in case we get into a recession. They will want to see a higher floor than employers will. Uh, and employers might be willing to countenance the floor, but they'll want a lower floor. Uh, so I think we're going to see a lot more in the way of discussions about CPI-driven increases now than we ever have before, or than we have in the last 30, 40 years. CPI is going to become incredibly relevant, maybe even more relevant than what's going on in comparable jurisdictions although what's going on in comparable jurisdictions is driven by the CPI as well. Uh, what are we seeing out there right now in wage increases in public safety? Uh, we're seeing the numbers, uh, I, I don't even want to say creep up. They are kind of steadily marching up. And they are marching up because uh, of the combination of the cost of living and the law enforcement recruitment and retention crisis. And uh, even though that's a law enforcement crisis, uh, the, when you give police officers and corrections officers and deputy sheriffs raises, there's pressures on employers to do the same thing for firefighters, EMTs, and people who aren't law enforcement. So you're seeing these pressures on wage increases. Uh, my prediction right now is that the average wage settlement uh, in law enforcement for uh, the year 2022, when all the dust is settled and we look back on the wages for uh, 2022, 
My guess is for law enforcement, we're going to see an average raise in the amount of 5 to 6%, much, much more than we have. Uh, you know, that's, that's double or triple what the increases have been over the last 20 years per year. I think for firefighters, it's going to be about a percent lower. And I think for corrections officers, I think it's going to be higher than for police and deputy sheriffs. Because if there's anybody we can't recruit in this country right now, it's corrections officers. And it's easy to predict that these sorts of wage increases are going to pose problems for employers. Because employers' budgets tend to lag behind changes in the economy by a year or two. So I think we're going to see a lot of conflicts in bargaining over wages, conflicts that we just simply haven't seen. I think we can also predict uh, that because of the recruitment and retention crisis in law enforcement, you're going to see law enforcement unions put more money into places that are really nothing more than disguised wage increases. So the Portland contract recently settled. The Portland police contract settled. My partner, Anil Karia, settled that one. Part of the money in the Portland contract is going to be in the form of crisis intervention training pay. They'll get an extra a couple of percent uh, officers will if they go through crisis intervention training pay. What percentage of the bargaining unit will get crisis intervention training pay? 100%. That's nothing more than a disguised form of a wage increase. I haven't talked to Anil about this, but uh, I, it's pretty clear what's going on there. And what does that do? That gives the employer some top cover where it can address the recruitment and retention problem in Portland, where we're down 200 officers right now, or 300 officers. Uh, it's 300. Uh, it gives the employer top cover to begin to try to address that while at the same time not being as clearly subject to other unions, for example, the General Employees Union here in Portland, saying we want what the police got. It gets some top cover from the Me Too pressure. So all of that by way of saying uh, interesting times in bargaining, uh, challenging times in bargaining that are going to be driven uh, by this incredible level of increase in the CPI, a rate of increase that I don't think is going to abate, uh, may not abate at all in 2022, unless we hit a recession, always that is a possibility, but may not abate for years in the future. By the way, uh, one thing on wages, LRIS is doing a wage survey right now uh, if we haven't reached out to you and given you the links where you can fill out your survey information, just go to LRIS.com. We'll also post a direct link in the show notes here. Uh, we'll also have a, uh, a link to the, uh, the Boston uh, Physical and Psychological Examination Opinion. Uh, that survey, I, I think, is going to be really important. First of all, nobody else is doing these national surveys, and we want to get the data on that. Uh, we want to get some up-to-date data on things like 
uh, compression between ranks. So what's the standard differential, for example, between lieutenant and captain, whether you're in fire service or in law enforcement? We want to get up-to-date information on police fire parity. What's the difference right now, if any, between police and fire wages in the same community? We want to look at regional differences in wages. Uh, we want to look at these uh, other forms of compensation, like the crisis intervention training pay. Uh, and we also want to try to do a correlation of wages and collective bargaining, and not just collective bargaining as a whole, but whether or not your bargaining ends with binding arbitration. Uh, so we're encouraging everybody. We, we don't really care how few or how many employees you have or you represent. Encouraging everybody to fill this out. You'll get a free copy of the survey that you can do with what you will. And it'll be accurate for, oh, I don't know, about three nanoseconds or something like that until the next set of contracts is uh, negotiated. We already have a lot of responses, but uh, please do uh, fill out your survey. It doesn't take long, and you get something free in return, right? You get the final survey results. Well, with that, thank you for joining us for uh, the April edition of First Thursday. We hope to see you at an upcoming LRIS seminar. We'll be in Fort Lauderdale in a few weeks to do our annual wellness seminar, where I will talk about physical and psychological evaluations for a while, but we'll also have people talk about things that are much more serious than that, uh, talking about the different forms of wellness programs that exist uh, around the country in police and fire, physical wellness, psychological wellness, economic wellness, and the like, and what works and what doesn't work. We hope to see you there or at one of our uh, future upcoming seminars. Uh, and with that, this is Will Aitchison signing off. <music>